I assure you, Jesus loves it when he sees you loving one another. It's a great thing. Good morning and welcome to this worship service. It's good to see you. Um, I wasn't sure where to begin. I wasn't sure how long the sermon would be, but I came across this article about a week ago, and I thought I'd read it to you because I, I felt it would set the stage. A group of bishops led by the president of the German Bishops' Conference see themselves as trendsetters of the church on the march to modernity. These German bishops consider the secularization and de-Christianization of Europe as an irreversible development. And for this reason, have abandoned evangelization, since it is, in their view, a battle against the objective course of history, resembling Don Quixote's battle against the windmills. These German bishops believe that all the doctrines of the faith that are opposed to the mainstream societal consensus must be reformed. No, this is not from that onion or whatever it is thing. This is a real article. Among many other things, the doctrines requiring reform include relativizing the indissolubility of marriage and approval for sexual relations before and outside of marriage. Among the faithful, there are quite a few who feel abandoned and betrayed by their shepherds, who often care more about being popular in public opinion than tending to their flock. We are experiencing conversion to the world instead of to God. Blink, blink, blink. Whatever these bishops think they are, they are not the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what would James do? Well, he would write James 1, 19 through 25. And that's our text today. You'll find it in the bulletin. And at some point, I'm going to read it. But I am going to read it from the bulletin insert. You'll have a little insert in your bulletins. That's the New American Standard Version. I do not regard James as the writing of an apostle. This James does nothing more than drive us to the law and its works. He is flatly against St. Paul and all the rest of the scripture in ascribing justification to works. Besides, he throws things together so chaotically. Martin Luther on his grumpy day. <laughs> now, that will make you want to sit up and listen to a sermon from James. James can be hard to understand, even perhaps controversial. He and Paul have even been portrayed as the dueling apostles, picking up their doctrinal weapons, as it were, and facing each other. Well, Martin notwithstanding, James, the brother of Jesus, under the inspiration of God's Spirit, penned the passage we are looking at today. And rather than facing off with each other, I think James and Paul stood back to back, looking out at this young, vulnerable church, 
addressing the issues of the day that had to be addressed to protect the gospel and the faith. For Paul, he would hear of people adding to the finished all-sufficient work of Christ, and he would go after them, for this is not of the faith. You could say in modern terms that Paul's motto was, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. For James, it was different. He looked out and saw God's people living out of their newfound freedom in Christ with a seeming disconnect to the heart of Christ, a disconnect to the scriptures. James was grieved at this, and so he would go after them, for this was not faith. You could say again in modern terms that James's motto was, Jesus minus nothing equals everything. And so we are given the passage today. Take a look at it. It's in the New American Standard Version in your uh, insert, and I'll read it. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in the mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. What jumps out at you as you begin this passage is that great declaration of being quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. It's one of those well-worn passages we quote a lot. For everyone has dealt with anger. If I asked you for a show of hands of those here who have dealt with anger, either anger in themselves or anger is from someone, I am sure the room would be filled with raised hands. Sadly, anger is a large part of our lives. It can wound deeply, separate families, cause divisions, and bear lifelong scars. It can deaden, destroy, and divide like nothing else. No one is immune from it, and sermons have been and must be preached into our souls to heal us from it. But not today. Well, not directly today. You see, you can take this and the whole of the passage as a to-do list from James. As an introvert, I think being quick to hear and slow to speak is great advice. Really, really great advice. And certainly, if we practiced this advice on anger, there would be healing in our lives, the lives of our families 
and in the fabric of our society at large. But if this passage was about behavioral change, then, well, you, you would not need a Savior. And you certainly would not need the Holy Spirit. The one whom God said in Ezekiel, I will put my spirit in you, and you will live. Now, I think James has set up our approach to this passage from the previous verses. So, I get to go back. In the earlier part of the chapter, we dealt with two main topics. Do you remember them? Trials and temptations. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, and each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Trials ask us to trust the heart of God. Temptations ask us to trust our own heart. These two themes are not just a great context or a setup for our verses today, but more broadly, they are the two main themes of all of Scripture. The two main themes, actually, of life. I am convinced you can interpret all of Scripture, all of redemption, and all of life itself through these two main themes. And not only interpret, interpret it, but from what I see, you and I will live our lives either through humility, the bowing down to the trusting of the heart of God, or autonomy, independence from the heart of God, trusting our own heart bowing down to myself. That is what confronts us in the passage today. Is the Lord God or are you God? And as James knows, this is not a question of how you feel. It's not even a question of what you confess. For James, actually for Jesus himself, it is a question of how you respond. How do you respond to what the Lord says? James loved the word of God. He knew that the breath of God was life, that the word of God was life, and that the word became flesh and gave us life. Our lives are inseparable from the word. And as he watched believers, yes, believers, would separate the word of God from God the Word. They would be, as he puts it, hearers, but not doers of the Word. They would struggle with humility, the gift, this, this gift from our Father, and they would struggle with autonomy, this gift 
from the father of lies. When Jesus saw this struggle, he was clear. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my father who is in heaven will enter. In the verse we all know, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So James is writing today, not so that a people will be good, but they, that they might live, that they might be free. The struggles, the temptations they faced ended in, of course, bondage. They were living lives responding to their own hearts. He would actually call that filthiness and rampant wickedness. And in reaching for these temptations, they would deaden the loyalties of their souls. That is why, read with me in verse 21, that is why we are called to receive with humility the implanted word which is able to save our souls. Other translations translate this Greek word prautes as meekness. But I like what Strong's Concordance says about the word and about its prefix pra. Quote, This difficult-to-translate root, pra, means more than meek. Biblical meekness is not weakness, but rather this word refers to the exercising of God's strength under his control, and that is the heart of this passage. As our brother James, well, Jim Bob, as James would say, uh, he's an elder here. Not, not this James. Um, as he would say, bottom line up front, the, the heart of this passage is humility. That bowing down to trusting the heart of God, and it is nothing less than the gift of God's strength under his control. Without humility, there is no savior. Without humility, There is no new birth. And without humility, there is no freedom. Humility changes everything. Humility is what we lost. And humility is what was restored. In the beginning, as a part of the divine image, listen to that. As a part of the divine image, we were bestowed with humility. And then in slithered autonomy. Scripture tells us exactly the nature of this tempter and of our fall. It's found in Isaiah 14, how you have fallen from heaven, O star of David. 
O day star, O son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars. I will set my throne on high. I will sit in the amount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud, and I will make myself like the most high. That is what we embraced. That is what we believed. We had everything. Everything. And yet, that's what we chose. You can be as God. <laughs> this autonomy is ancient and it is in us if we bow down to our own hearts it offers us freedom godlikeness to do what we want to do to determine our own destiny to reach for what tastes good to us and through it we lost we lost everything. We died. Man ceased to be man. And as Bonhoeffer put it, man must now live without the ability to live. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. No attempt, no effort, no matter how serious, pious, or devoted, no religion or philosophy, no altruism, nor education can restore us to that divine image, to the freedom, to the fellowship, to that garden. Man ceased to be man, and so he must be Recreated. And here is the glory and the mystery of this gospel. Our recreation is born out of the humility of God. Family, friends, the triune God we worship, the creator of heaven and earth, our God is God the humble. The knowledge that God so loved us that he sent his son for us is precious and basic to our faith. Yes, out of love for us, God the Father asked his son to redeem us, to bring us back to him. But the part of this treasure we often miss is that from his divine humility, Christ responded. When the father asked, Christ said, yes, I will do what you ask. What God humbles himself. What love. And so the apostle John would write that the word of God became flesh 
and we beheld his glory. Listen to the connection there. Yes, I will take on human flesh and we beheld his glory. Yes, I will be a man of sorrows and we beheld his glory. Yes, I will be wounded for their transgressions and we beheld his glories. Yes, I will be reviled. Yes, my soul will make an offering for their sin. Yes, I will be crushed for their iniquities and we beheld his glory. Yes, he was crucified, died, and buried. He has risen and ascended. And in all of this, we beheld his glory. This is the God who comes to us. This is the God who regenerates us, who takes what was dead and makes it alive. This is the God who takes away our hearts of stone and gives us hearts of flesh. And in that moment... In the moment the Spirit of God imparts, it's the moment the Spirit of in the moment the Spirit of God imparts to us this divine humility, we once again get to see him. We get to see him as he is. And we hear those words for the first time again. I have loved you with an everlasting love. And we see, we see our humble Savior, Jesus the Lord. And when we see him, when we behold that glory in his humility, when God grants us to see that autonomy dies, We bow down, and faith is born in our souls, and we are born again, and we are recreated. I am undone. I am undone. What did Isaiah write? I am undone. Hallelujah. I'm undone. What we could not do, he did. And so the psalmist would write, he adorns the humble with salvation. To define our God without humility is to miss his full glory. To, divine, to, to define the gospel without humility is to miss the full gospel. And to define our lives without humility is to miss our full freedom. So James would say, receive with humility the implanted word. So from verse 19, from this humility in this world of ever-increasing words, when the word of God is opened, you will respond to it for what it is, the breath of life. You will be quick to sit under it, to listen to it, to adore it, to taste it. Oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all the day. And with this humility, you will recognize that this word is God himself nurturing you. And like Job, you will say, teach me, and I will be silent. 
And as you approach the word with this gift of humility, anger will fade. Phoebe shared with me early in our marriage that she had come to learn that anger comes from unyielded rights. Here, in a unique phrase, James calls it the anger of man, that human expression of unyielded rights. We think, or we know we have, we think, or we know we have a right to respect, health, comfort, loving parents, a good home, happiness, fill in the blank. And when those rights are denied, we become angry. We will not yield those rights. And behold, the anger of man. The anger can linger for a moment, a month, or for a lifetime. And all of us sitting here know what that anger can do. Make no mistake, when autonomy slithered into the garden, it was angry. He was angry that God was God and he was not. We inherited that anger. The scriptures record this. It's wonderful. The scriptures record this in the first story after the fall. Cain and Abel. And they both brought offerings to God, and God did not accept Cain's. Cain brought the offering. He had a right to God's acceptance, for in his eyes, it was a good offering. But we read, God had no regard for Cain's offering. You want to guess what comes next? And Cain was very angry. And you know what comes next. And Cain killed his brother. Never, ever underestimate the lingering influence of the fall. Cain would not yield to God's heart, and so the anger of man. When you approach the word of God, when it is preached or taught, do you yield? Or is there resentment? Anger. Humility. That mercy from God is healing and restoring. In verse 21, in humility... In humility, examine yourselves, put away all that is not of his heart, all filthiness, all wickedness. In referring to this, Paul would later say in Colossians, put to death. Remember, I told you never underestimate. Paul says, kill what is earthly in you. And put on the new self, which is being renewed after the image of its creator. And then James talks about the implanted word. It's probably a reference to Jeremiah and the New Covenant, which God said, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. The Word created us. The Word became flesh. 
and the word recreated us. I think James uses the phrase implanted word to remind us that, praise God, we are God's work. To remind us of the riches of the glory of the mystery, which is Christ in us, the hope of glory. I think he wrote these words for our assurance. So what do our lives look like with or without this humility? That's the chapter. That's the rest of these verses. In the first verse, in verse 23, James reminds us through the mirror imagery, through the mirror imagery that as with Cain, sin is crouching at our door and its hallmark is deception. Just like our first parents, we deceive ourselves when we approach God's word with autonomy. That is, it's about me. To our poverty and to the poverty of the church, I am not immune to this. Neither are you. We look into that mirror of the word and we make a judgment. Yes, we look into God's word and we make a judgment about his word, about the heart of God. Just like in the beginning, did God really say? Make a judgment, Mark. How does this make you feel? How will it benefit you? Is this what you want? Does it fit into the lifestyle you've chosen? This temptation, this autonomy, autonomy, make no mistake, it's always about us. We look intently, what does the scripture say? At our natural face. We sit under the word, leave, and then poof. Life goes on. To paraphrase Bonhoeffer, this is called cheap faith. A faith that says, I love Jesus, and I bow down to myself having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. We look into the word as if the Holy Spirit does not exist, as if we were able to live without dying, as if these are good words for living and not life itself. Yes, we look into the word and it has no impact on us. And we forget who we are. We end up with indifference, distance, division in our heart. And we end up living without the ability to live. But now here. Next in the text, this is where I get goosebumps. James alludes to the same imagery of the mirror, but he changes the verb. In the previous look, look into the mirror, it's the word, it's the Greek word, katanoeo. It means to perceive or to consider. But here, in verse 25, he uses a different word, the verb parakupto. I, I honestly had no idea about this. I, I looked it all up. 
according to Strong's, it is the Greek word meaning to stoop to a thing in order to look at it. To look at it with head bowed forward. To look into with the body bent. To stoop and to look into. Did you hear it? Although this word seems to describe a physical approach, you can't read this word as originally given and not, an ima- and not imagine. It's an approach of our souls. A bowing down of the head, the body, the heart. It's approaching God with a faith born of humility. And here, James just does not just call it the word, but look what he says about it. He calls it the law of liberty. Another unique phrase. Okay, there's been some main points, but get this one. Do not let the world define words. Everyone who is born again and sees the kingdom of God will stand and declare where the will of God is done. Thy will be done. There and only there is freedom. It is Jesus himself who defined our freedom. In John 8, if you, what? If you abide in my word, you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. Mankind was promised and still lives under the promise that freedom is found in our will. independence from God. That those who believe in, who follow, who obey those myths of the Bible are fooled, pitiable, misled. Oh, but what a lie. We had everything. We had his presence. We had his fellowship. We had his image. We had his divine nature. And we traded it all for what we were sold as our free will. We gained the whole world. We lost our souls. Today, may our humility before his word be a declaration that we have lost the world and gained our freedom. Today, may our response to his word Be the cry of our reborn hearts. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in us as it is in heaven.
And today, in our obedience to his word, may our Father look upon us and see as in a mirror that reflection of his beloved son, the one who humbled himself even to the point of death. And today, may the word of Christ dwell in us richly so that it might be said of us, we are the church humble. Let's pray. We bow down, Father, and we turn our souls to worship you, to worship you for humbling yourself for us. Today, grant your son's presence in us. Grant the fullness of his presence. Grant that it might overflow that we might be like Jesus, humble, so that we might live through him and to him and for him. Be the glory. Amen. So rise for the benediction, please. This benediction is my daughter Emily's favorite verse, so this is sort of from us to you. Jesus said, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take, upon, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Amen.